Welcome to Lab the Podcast. We create space for real conversations with real people whose lives and work give us a glimpse of the life and beauty of the gospel. We're live from Tampa, Florida at Buddy Brew on Kennedy. Can't wait for the conversation, so here we go. Thank you for being here. It's Thursday night, and it has become my favorite night of the week in Tampa because there is nothing like uh, a real conversation with real people who are curious. They're interested. They're ready to be surprised by something. They're maybe open to something that they didn't even know they were open to. And so I'm glad that you took the time to come. Uh, I've said this before, that when I was growing up as a kid, we had the Reader's Digest magazine, the Guidepost magazines, and that's how I came up with the idea for Lab the Podcast. It was just meeting people whose stories spoke to me when I wasn't even ready for it, uh, and I needed that because I was not always looking for the right thing. Sometimes I was just bouncing, most of my life, I was just bouncing through, and God found a way through people's stories to show me that he was there and that he was a God that is not done with you and that he is at work and his voice is uh, this kind of haunting whisper that you just hear, you pick up on it. And so that's why we created Lab the Podcast. So thank you for joining me. Now that is out of the way. So we are going to officially start and I'm going to introduce my next guest. Uh, And I will tell you this about my next guest. If you have not ever, or if you can't say that you've ever seen a miracle, then I'm telling you that tonight, if you're live in the room, you are seeing a living, breathing miracle, a work of God that should not, we should not be having this conversation. Uh, Without God in the equation, tonight's conversation would not be happening. And so tonight we get to see a miracle live, and and if you're listening online, you get to hear a miracle. And so I want to introduce my next guest. His name is Michael Berrien Jr., He is from Macon, Georgia, and he came down all the way five hours, right, Right. to have this conversation. So would you say hello and welcome, Michael? First impression of Tampa. Was this your first time, or is this your first time? Yes. What do you think? I love it. Yeah? I want to move down here. You moved down here. We'll welcome you. (laughs) We We got him a spot by the water, and so you should spend like two days and go see other things because it's easy to fall in love next to the water. So it's good. It's good to have you. Uh, We are in Tampa, which to me is a different city. I am a West Coast guy who came from a small little rural spot outside of Portland, Oregon. And... I was introduced to Macon, Georgia by friends from Tampa who now live in Macon, Georgia, but I had never heard of your city. I had no idea what Macon, Georgia was like. And when Jerome and I got there the first time, when our family went there, we were introduced to a city that is equal parts beautiful and broken. And the broken part is broken like I had never seen before. Uh, In Oregon, we have this place east of Burn. You know, the east side of Portland used to be rough. There was these certain parts of the city that were rough. There is no place in Portland, Oregon, that I would say compares to some of the stuff that I saw in Macon. And there's a particular neighborhood called Pleasant Hill that has a reputation for. Uh, back in the day, it was there. It was kind of nice. Uh, I heard from people that that was right. great. But your experience in Pleasant Hill was different. So, would you introduce us to? Pleasant Hill to your neighborhood in Macon, Georgia. Okay. Well, I grew up in um, a neighborhood called Pleasant Hill. Um, 
And as a young child growing up in the neighborhood, just very influenced by what was going on around me, which was mostly criminal activity. So at a certain point of age, you know, growing into a teenager, just fell in love with that because that's all I saw, all I knew, all that was around me. And I just instantly got um, involved in a whole lot of things. Pleasant Hill was maybe considered one of the most drug-infested areas in Macon, Georgia. Uh, a lot of drug dealers, a lot of um, addicts, different things like that. Uh, I remember being in elementary school and a guy that I knew that I grew up with, you know, was selling weed. And he was only fifth, sixth grade. You know, and normally you would hear about that in high school, but it started very early in my neighborhood uh, where people would get out and sell drugs, young boys, you know, gang-affiliated, you know, from Crips to Bloods, uh, Gangster Disciples. Uh, and we have a gang that's considered, it's a making gang that it was made up, it's called the Mafia. But um, just being involved with so many things like that, you know, breaking and entering, um, breaking in cars, different stuff, and talking about at the level of, you know, elementary kids, where, you know, you're supposed to be learning about, you know, uh, elementary type things, and we're being taught how to be gangsters, you know, at a very young age uh, in the neighborhood that I grew up in. Yeah. And, um, but Pleasant Hill was, as you said, very beautiful, you know, but it became something else based on people that was involved around and like, you know, older heads teaching young people, you know, how to commit crimes, you know, robbery, selling drugs. I remember the first time I sold uh, crack cocaine, it was from somebody that was older than me that gave me a deal. Um, instead of uh, charging me full price, he charged me, you know, a, per a percentage of the price that I can have my own, you know, sack to sell and I began selling drugs. From, from him, you know, and older people that introduced me into the gang life, and I started to be gang affiliated because somebody older, you know, in my neighborhood put me on to that kind of stuff. And when we were driving through those neighborhoods, it's really, it is beautiful. The architecture and some of the houses, you, you really drive down the streets and some of the houses are kind of built and there's steps up to them and there's right. porches. And as we were going through some of those neighborhoods, there were just, there was a presence of older guys just hanging out on porches. And right. I can imagine as a young guy that that is what you're looking up to that. Your mom was doing her best yeah. to, it sounds like your mom was great and was welcoming kids into your home and doing Bible studies and right. doing her best to try to keep you out of that. Yeah, um, she tried. Yeah. At what age did you kind of choose to lean out from everything that your mom had tried to do? It was about age 13, 14, when I, you know, started smoking weed. Got introduced to smoking from my older cousin. Um, I started smoking weed. Uh, around the time I got expelled from middle school, I got kicked out of middle school. Uh, you know, I was supposed to have 15 write-ups. You know, they spared me, blessed me. I had 57 write-ups, and I guess they got tired of writing me out and they <laughs> e expelled me from school. It's just a little bit over. Yeah. <laughs> and they sent me to alternative school, and for some reason, people think that when you take all the city's bad kids and put them in one place, that we're just going to turn out better. But, you know, I learned more criminal <laughs> stuff. I got involved, you know, with more things, you know, because of all the people I was around, you know. 
Because, yeah. um, you know, in alternative school, all the bad kids there, and I learned more stuff. And thinking about today, all those, a lot of kids that I was with in alternative school, either dead, in jail, they've been to prison, or they still out there living some kind of life, only a few changed their life. And I was blessed to be one of those that, you know, got the U-turn, but uh, it don't happen often at all. Well, we'll get into that in just a second. Was your dad around when you, I mean, at this 13, 14 age? No, he wasn't. I hadn't, you know, seen him in a while. He would pop up every now and then. Uh, him and my mom was not um, the best of friends. And my thing, you know, from my understanding from, from his end, he did, my mom didn't want him around, so he stopped making effort, you know, at some point. And around this time, I believe my dad was a alcoholic, you know, he was from woman to woman, that type of stuff, and, you know, I hated him for that, but I fell in love with other men that did that, you know, far as, you know, I looked up to womanizers and drug dealers and the guys that was able to get the big car with the big rims on it. I wanted to be like those guys, you know, but my dad doing it and not being, and that causing him not to be in my life, I, I, I disliked him, so, you know, yeah. he wasn't around much. Yeah. So you're 14, mom is trying her best to keep you, uh, and you keep leaning out, going the other way. Yeah. You've got your friends, your little crew that you were rolling around with, and you, came, you were doing all the stuff you were doing, but there was really a turning point that you talk about in your book. Uh, you, Michael's written a, a great book that's really just your story. It's called From yeah. a Convert to a Con, Convict to a Convert. Yes. And, um, we've got one copy we're going to give away, but I'll tell you how to find that on Amazon. But tell us about that kind of defining moment that ended up sending you to prison, ultimately. Yeah. When I turned 14, uh, one day walking from school, I was introduced to this young guy that became my best friend. His name, we call him Pee Wee. Uh, his real name was Prince. And I just fell in love with him, man, just, you know, and me and him was like the best of friends. And another guy who moved to my neighborhood that I went to alternative school with, and all three of us, you know, we became best of friends. And Pee Wee's family, they was a part of Gangster Disciples, and they introduced me to the lifestyle of that, you know, even down to his mom, you know, used to be representing all his sisters, his brother, you know, we called him OG Bobby, but he was a um, Gangster Disciple. And I got involved with that, you know, lifestyle and then I began to, you know, sell drugs and do all that. And one day, uh, my cousin, you know, uh, wanted, he fronted me some, some drugs to sell for him. And he was real smart for us, you know, if you want to be uh, smart as a criminal, uh, he would put me on the block with big old, you know, uh, rocks that was bigger than everybody else's, but we charged the same price for it, you know, so that everybody would come to me and, just me being young and not real educated, I messed up the money and in my effort to try to get my cousin his money back and my and my friends, we decided that we was gonna commit a robbery. And committed a robbery, committed another robbery, and committed another robbery and we ended up getting caught. And in the midst of that we vowed, you know, I talk about that Proverbs one in, in the book where you know, we vowed that we wouldn't go home that night until we robbed somebody. And we literally stayed out half of the night, you know, wee hours of the morning until we robbed somebody. Then we went home, you know. And when we would make vows like that, we would do what we said we would do until it was done, you know. And um, 
This is one of those things that in your book I loved, just getting the perspective. These are kids, young, young, young people. And you guys' conversation was, we're going to get some money. Right. And you were, uh, he just tells the story from a perspective where as an outsider, you go, well, how can something like that happen? But he tells the story from your perspective. You go, how could you not do that? I needed money. I needed to s- yeah. solve this problem. So we made a plan. And then you saw this victim and you go, well, how does somebody end up in the wrong place at the wrong time? Your description of the victim is they just parked, <laughs> they parked yeah. their car and just yeah. walked by and you pounce. You said you pounce like... Uh, I don't know, lions, cheated, lions on a gazelle. gazelle. Yeah. yeah, you were just waiting. That happened, that led to the two other robberies, right? Right. And then it caught up to you. Yeah, and just random random people, no plan, just first one that come, you know, um, no real plan about getting any money or anything, just wanted to um, do something. Were you conscious at the time? I mean, I I pick it up a little bit in the book that there was some fear in you. There was some desire. You didn't want to necessarily go down that road, but you felt like you didn't have a choice. Yeah, I didn't want to do it. But because of my friends and me wanting to be down um, and wanting to be gangster, uh, I went along with it. And I had enough influence. As the oldest, I was 16. My co-defendants were 15 and 14. As the oldest, if I would have said, let's not do this, they would have listened to me. But instead, you know, I, when I was asked to do it, I, I went along with it and did it. And that was a fourth person with us that didn't go to prison with us because mm-hmm. he made the right decision. And right before we robbed, he said he had to go home, he left. So when we went to prison, he was on the streets. And I think, I think about that all the time. That could have, you know, that should have been me saying, you know, I got to go. Was it the first person that you robbed? I mean, Miracle One is just, your mom was with you. She's praying for you. So God had not left you alone. He had given you this amazing mom that's in your life, and he had been with you. I think that you could count the miracles, but was it the first person that you robbed was carrying a gun and a toll, or it was the second? I can't The first. First one. First person we robbed, um, we found out you know, later that he had a gun in a holster. And he, he told the police officer, to yeah, the only reason he didn't shoot because he knew we was kids. Because he could have just shot in the crowd. He would have hit one of us. You know, could have been me, could have been one of my friends. Either way, I would have been affected, you know, and um, spat us, yeah. So that night, unbeknownst to Michael, he's a kid, goes up to rob somebody who's carrying a gun, decides not to shoot him because he's a kid. God shows you, I mean, just, there's, there's an amazing story there. You, and you enter a house, everybody else bolts. I think this is the third time. Yeah, this is the third Everybody time. else leaves. Right. And you come face to face with the homeowner. Right. And they just let you walk out. Yeah. Just let me get away. Um, no question. You asked me, do I want to leave? I said, yes. They moved out of the way and let me go. Uh, could have held me there, you know. Um, but it was amazing how all that took place, you know. And um, I'm just grateful, you know. It could have been worse. Even when the police came to pick us up, it was pointing these big guns in our face and all this. And, you know, we hear so many stories now about how police shoot people. And coming in my neighborhood, you know, people are afraid of the police for that reason. And, you know... The mission is protect and serve, but 
in our eyes, you know, we don't we don't trust the police for several mm-hmm. reasons. But police is is good, you know. They a lot of them are good. You know, you do have those few that are not, but for the most part, the police are needed and they are good. Yeah, you know. There's some irony there to now where you're going to work. So we'll get to that. Right. But so you you do this, and it, it are you 16 years old when you yeah, are si- convicted? Right. You plead 16. guilty. Yeah, 16. And this is an amazing program in Georgia. What's the program called that called, allowed uh, you? First Offender Act. Tell yeah. us about the First Offender Act and what was presented to you. What was presented to me in my plea bargain, um, it was offering me three counts of armed robbery and a count of kidnapping. They charged me with four felonies. 16 years old, all of us got charged as, an, as adults. A part of my plea bargain was I can accept the First Offender Act, and it's not a guilty, not guilty plea. It's first offender in your first time, and they will give you time, and if you do your time, stay out of trouble, get off probation, they'll expunge your record, clear it like it never happened. You can have a future, you know. You don't have to worry about anybody pulling it up, um, and, you know, because that's the most thing. When people get out of prison, their life is kind of messed up because of their record. You know, with, with the First Offender Act, they clear your record. And it's amazing. they expunge it, you know, so. So you said yes? Yeah, I said yes to that. <laughs> and, said uh, yes to that, but there was some condition that if yeah. you violated the yeah, agreement. Yeah, if I violated I would be taken back to court, recharged, resentenced, and they would probably give me the max, which um, I was facing about 50 years for all my charges, but they would probably give me one count, and I probably would at least have to do 15 years. Do uh, 15, serve 10. 10 in and 5 on paper, because that's what my co-defendants had. Okay, so that we don't lose that, imagine 16 years old, the best deal presented is what you took, which we'll talk about what you actually were, the time that you were able to do, but what you're facing is, if I mess up again, do anything to violate that agreement, then I'm going to be recharged in at minimum 10 years, right. 10 years in prison. So I would now be 26 years old coming out, and you would have your felony. Right. But that didn't happen. You, t- you said yes, you s- and you went in. Yeah. And what was your actual sentence for? 10 years, sir, four. So you were sentenced four, to 10? 10, 10 years. Allowed to do four. I had to do, to do four. four, incarcerated, six on papers. I ended up only doing... Three years and one month, and I was released on parole uh, earlier than I was supposed to be, and ankle monitor. And then I got on parole, went to probation, did probation, paid my restitution fines, community service, did right, you know, and they freed me in 2012, 10 years. Before we get in, the ankle monitor story, I want to talk about that a little bit because I see it as another just amazing work of God, but not the actual ankle monitor, but what happened. But going in, you're 16 years old and you're going to jail. And at 16, you went to the youth facility, but they transferred you because you were charged as an adult. You went to prison and you spent a thousand days, 1100 days, something like that. Right. In prison. Right. I, we don't have, I, I don't know what that's like. Get, let me into, let us into your mind as you are about to go to prison. I mean, are you, what are you, where are you at when that's happening? Yeah, I was, I was, um, 
you know, inwardly. I, I was afraid because of stuff I've seen on TV, stuff I've heard about prison, you know. Main thing was just about being raped or something like that. Um, and being young, being around adults, you know, that will uh, be predators to you. And so as a juvenile, you know, you act tough, you know, I'm in a juvenile, um, getting in a whole lot of trouble and trying to carry this, you know, this, this tough guy. But on the inside, you know, I was very afraid, you know. I knew I had to go to prison after I got my time. I knew I was going, and I just tried to, you know, condition my mind for it. And that was a glimpse of hope I had that I wouldn't go when I got to the YDC. And I turned 17, and they didn't come pick me up. I was like, they may let me do my four years in the YDC. That would be good. But four days after my 17th birthday, uh, the prison bus came, picked me up shackled me down, you know, and said, graduate, um, what they say? Welcome, welcome to the big boys, you know. Congratulations. And they put me on the bus, sat me in the front, shipped me two hours north, and hit me somewhere. Hmm. Was God a part of your world at this point? No. Distant? Were you no, I, I conscious can, I consider, of... I consider myself a Christian. But I wasn't living accordingly, you know, the way I was raised. So I prayed. You know, I had Bible scriptures I would read. I would even talk about God, but, you know, I wasn't into God like that, you know. I, even when I went to prison, I, I didn't go to church for maybe like a whole year. And when I did, it was for the wrong reasons. Yeah. Um, Take us into that moment in the story. I mean, there's so much that happened within those 1,100 days, but... Where did your, you talk about, and we'll get to your new album that's coming out, where you right. talk about being the one. Right. And the story that God goes after the one, and he kept coming after you. Take us into the moment in, in prison where he found you, like where you found right. him. I was in um, a prison called Lee Arendelle State Prison. It's called Alto. It was one of the most uh, dangerous prisons in Georgia. You know, where they sent a lot of juveniles there. A lot of things happened. Um, even when I was in prison, a guy that I knew on the 17-year-old range uh, got murdered when I was in prison. Somebody was trying to rape him. They ended up breaking his neck. And, you know, people was dying, you know, different things. People was getting raped, beat, stabbed, you know, getting their heads busted open and all of that. So when this guy died, they started moving all the juveniles out of the prison and shipping them on to other prisons because they were trying to transition, close the prison down because of that. Yeah. I don't know if they got sued or whatever, but because of that incident, they started to close the prison down and they were trying to transition and turn it to a women's prison and get all the males out and just split everybody up. Because um, they thought that it was the older people preying on the younger, but really it was the younger people that did what that was doing that. You know, people that been there a few years, and when new people come in, it's like a cycle. They get they treat people how they was treated when they came in. So they came in, and people would bother them or try to rape them or try to be sexual, anything like that. When After that, when new people would come in, they would turn around and do that to new people, and it continued to go on. 
But they ended up moving me to a prison called Hancock State Prison in Sparta, Georgia. And there, you know, um, that's when I got introduced to God. I had an encounter with God, and God showed me that he was real in the midst of a church service that I had went to. And it was so authentic. You know, I couldn't get up and walk away from that, acting like, you know, it didn't just happen. Because God grabbed me, you know, he grabbed me by my shirt and um, told me some things, about three main things he told me that um, always stuck with me. He told me that um, that I wasn't a Christian, you know. And he told me that I needed to be saved. And he told me that only Jesus could save me, no one else. Um, and so I submitted to that, you know, in that moment, you know, I asked God to come into my heart, left that change, it was real, you know, quick, simple, went to my dormitory, started tearing up all my raps that I had wrote, and God instantly started teaching me right from wrong, um, and in many ways showing me that he was real from that point, you know. How much time do you have left in your sentence at this point? This was in February uh, 2005. I came home in June 2005, so about what, four months or so. Yeah. Talk about being released. You said that you had been so used to being told what to do, right. you know, no freedom at all, that you get to the door. Yeah. And they say, you so can I, go. Yeah, they opened the gate, told me I can leave, and I just stood there, you know, waiting on, waiting on them. No, I stood at the gate, they opened the gate, and I just stood there until they told me to leave. Because I, I just didn't want to move without being told to move. I had been told for three years when to eat, when to go to sleep, when to get up, when to move, you know, all this stuff. So I just, I guess my mind had become institutionalized to that degree that I wouldn't move without being told to. Yeah. If you're... If you're listening to this story, we are flying through a life. Like we are blazing through a life with a mom and a dad and a lot of brokenness in your family and you on the streets and nights where you said you just kept taking as much rope as you could get and you'd end up spending the whole night out. Right. Now you're in jail, three years, institutionalized. One of the things that hit me is how, how do you remain hopeful how do you remain not so cynical? How do you not, out of that institutional you know, recidivism, just go right back out and right back in? You were on parole, and they, gave you, they told you to go get a job. Right. And you were given the opportunity, and this is for people who are listening, I, I want to ground us in how many moments, whatever side of the story we're sitting on, some employer gave you a chance. Right. You were fresh out of jail, fresh out of prison. You've got an ankle monitor on, and somebody risked it and gave you a job. Right. How big of a deal was that? It was a big deal to me. You know, my first job working at Crystal's, you know, uh, flipping burgers and stuff. And it was fun, but it was real, it was real um, genuine. This lady, you know, I talked to, spoke to that would give me an opportunity, even with the monitor on, that would trust me that I would do the right thing. You know, because normally they probably wouldn't hire somebody that well, had, had a background or whatnot. 
and I had got so conditioned, you know, even moving forward with life, that I would only go to certain places and apply that places I felt like they would accept me versus just go anywhere and just trust God. And, you know, I got to that point where I started just going anywhere and trusting God, started getting better jobs, even with a record, you know, and better jobs and better jobs, even with a record, where they would look up my record and they wouldn't see anything, you know. And all they would just see that I was arrested and I got a chance to explain, you know. And uh, I try to always be truthful with that instead of just not hiding that. You know, I would, I would tell people, you know, or whatnot. And people would give me opportunity and chances, you know, to yeah. work. It's remarkable to me that you said yes. And I'm sure it wasn't easy on the ego to be right. in a burger joint and your friends are out doing whatever they're doing and you could make more money going back and selling drugs right. and doing all of that. But instead you chose to be faithful and just walk it out. And that is remarkable to me. At what point did you start to have an imagination to go back into corrections, but this time not as a <laughs> as somebody who's being incarcerated? But I mean, this is the huge part of the story. What what happened for me is we met at an art studio in Macon. We just bumped into each other, and I heard your story. Right. And then Jerome and I got to hang out with you, and we were like, "This this guy is." There is a light to you. There is a hope to you that was contagious. And so I just, we stayed connected through social media. And all of a sudden I see his Facebook feed and it shows that he is in an academy, in a correctional facility academy, to be an officer in the facility. And then I saw the post when you graduated and you said, I'm going back to the place that I was incarcerated in. Right. How did that, when did you get an imagination that that might be something that you wanted to do? I got it. Um, 2017, in 2017, 2018, I was working at a, a group home with kids that the juvenile jail would send as a halfway house. They would come there. And I just fell in love with high risk youth. You know, that was, I considered just like me, the bad kids. Those were the ones I wanted to be around. Even at the facility I work in, I work on the worst unit that um, we have. And a lot of people don't want to work over there, but I, I love working with them. You know, mm-hmm. I love being around them. And um, so the place closed down, and I said, I want to continue in this field of work. So I put two options on the table. I said, I want to either be a social worker for defects. Or I wanted to be a juvenile probation officer. And I started going to criminal justice, criminal justice school, and then I just leaned on the side of being a juvenile probation officer. But first step, I had to go and apply. And since I didn't have my degree yet, they said if I would get some experience working as an officer, that I could transition. So I applied for the officer position and got hired. And then I went on to training, and a part of training was they had to submit my background, and I had got real cool with my director that he told me if my background didn't go through and they couldn't certify me to be an officer, that he would make sure that I could get a job doing something that was non-security, but I would still be able to work there. And they submitted all my stuff, and nothing came up. You know, nothing came up. They didn't have, I didn't have no record, and they approved me. And I was able to be an officer. And after that, you know, when I posted that feed, 
it went viral on Facebook, over 5,000 likes, 1,200 shares. It got to the commissioner, and he, um, they redid my background to make sure, <laughs> you know, nothing, we make the right choice. slipped through the cracks. <laughs> and it was told to me that my record was sealed, that no one could view it, only the FBI, and they had to have a reason to view it. So it was nothing they could do about it. If we are on a race, I'm like cheering and yelling and screaming. Like your yeah. story, the fact that you didn't, it's just amazing to me. And, yeah. and this is not like an hour and a half of deciding to do the right thing. This is day in, day out in the same neighborhoods, in the same city where, where you are, you're, an old life is right there. Right. Every single step of the way. And somehow he's just like this. It's amazing to me. So I'm cheering you on and cheering you on. Teach us really quick before I get the, the time card comes up, but you said something, you said uh, bad kids, like uh, bad kids like me, like I wanted to be right there with them. There's a stigma, you know, yeah. that I, you know, that I may not know you and I may not give you enough time to get to know you. Right. So I may say, well, he's one of the bad kids. Right. Teach us something that, what, about bad kids. What, what do we need to know? What do we need to remember from your time loving people and serving people who have stories themselves as a guy who has a story himself? What, do you, what can you teach all of us who are listening about loving and, and maybe having a more hopeful view of people. Yeah. Well, basically understanding that uh, nobody's too far from God. You know, Scripture says that the prostitutes, tax collectors, you know, Jesus may mention it, they would probably get into the kingdom uh, quicker than the ones that was chosen because the ones that were chosen rejected and the ones that was the bad uh, they received. So, um, in understanding that, you understand that a lot of these kids that come from where I come from, that are looked down on, you know, Jesus is the one that's for them, you know, the most. Scripture says that he came not to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. You know, he came for them. He came to seek and save that which was lost. And um, you have to be very hopeful in that aspect of those kind of kids and not give up on them because you never know your influence and how they could turn out. And these will be some of the bravest, boldest ones for um, Christ once, yeah. you know, introduced to that environment and understanding that they're only pretty much product of their environment, you know. They living out where they come from. And in, you know, my neighborhood, uh, in my city, you know, I'm dealing with the kids that come from my city. And they glorify, you know, drug selling and killing and robbing and, and all these things. But they're only dishing out what they know, what they've been taught. And until they're taught something different, they won't have a different perspective on it. What's the most powerful thing that somebody did for you? Something that you go, I'll never forget it. That where they gave me a chance, where they s said something to me that still sticks to this day. Um... Probably had to take more thought into thinking about it. Yeah. Um, I'll let you chew on that one. Yeah. Yeah. 
it's just it's amazing to me how again we're blazing through one life but I hope what you're picking up if you're listening right now I hope what you're picking up is that that every one of us has a story you know scripture says no one is righteous no not one every single one of us has a story there's a reality to our story and so that is just good for us to remember that remember who you're talking to that the people on the other side of a conversation from you they you Sometimes we can't imagine how someone would be doing the things they're doing. Right. And yet if we were in their shoes, we might not imagine any other thing to do than what it was that night committing a robbery. That seemed like what you had to do. And I think that's an important thing to remember. I just am I'm blown away by your courage and by mm-hmm. that lightness of your being. And I'm excited to see what comes next. I don't think it's always going to be corrections. You know, maybe it'll be a part of that. You want to go on to actually be a parole officer. Yeah. And the heart there is that you can actually be more one-on-one and mentoring young people. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Do you want to stay in Georgia? You want to stay in in Pleasant Hill and serve there? No. I just want to do it as long as I'm around. But I do like, I would like to move out away. Yeah. Somewhere, anywhere. Tampa. Yeah. yeah. I don't know what God may may send me, but while I'm in that area, you know, Pleasant Hill is is my home. You know, I love it. I feel safe there. You know, even in the midst of all of what's going on, I would would rather be there, you know, than anywhere else in the world. But because of my responsibilities and things like that and, and, you know, my children and stuff, stuff that I wouldn't want them to be raised in that environment but outside of them I would stay in that environment because I believe that I could I have something to offer to those people and I have built a reputation around that of my change and evidence and my representation of Christ in the midst of a lot of people around there that still you know on the corner selling drugs and still affiliated with that kind of stuff did you ever feel like you were too far gone? You mentioned that. Like, just that sometimes we just feel like... Oh, yeah. There's not enough... You know, I've done too much. Yeah. Uh, this will never get straightened out. Did I you have. ever feel like that? Yeah, I have. Even as a believer, I felt like that. You know, in life, you make uh, maybe poor choices, uh, you know, bad decisions. feel like that. And people can handle you, treat you like that, you know, and then you have some glimpse of hope, somebody that come and tell you that it's not over and God ain't done with you. Mm. And I choose to believe in that more than believe in the voices of others Yeah, that make me feel like God has walked away yeah. and being consistent with the character of God, I know that he's not done. Yeah. I don't think so. Right. Sometimes I'm having conversations with people and I'm like, ah, this guy might be the president. I don't know. Like, I just have a sense that there's more to the story. So yeah. uh, be encouraged. And I hope that leaving Tampa and going back to Georgia, you are encouraged. Because yeah, even so. just your willingness to be honest about what it is to be 13 and 14 and make mistakes, we need to have this conversation because it affects, if nothing else, we may not live in a neighborhood like that, but I'm telling you what, you vote and we vote for people and policies and things like that. We advance things that sometimes we do not think about places like Pleasant Hill or places even like North Tampa that are in desperate need of more opportunity, more hope. We've got 
people who are here that are in churches in North Tampa and things like that, neighborhoods that desperately need hope. And that's something that we can just go out of here tonight thinking about, like, do not rush. None of us, let's not rush to the places of influence that we do have without being thoughtful that there's somebody like Michael out there that is in desperate need of help and hope. And maybe it's nothing but just your mom sticking with you and believing. One thing that really stood out to me, the biggest thing you asked that question, it wasn't necessarily what somebody said, it was what somebody did, which is giving me hope and giving me drive. The minister that came in and preached the service I got saved, they took time out of their busy schedule to come into a prison and speak to inmates, not knowing that one would get saved, and for me to go and turn around and do the work that God has allowed me to do for him. Um, you, you, you never expect that to come out of that, so you never know. So in effort to going out doing your ministry, you don't know who will hear you, who will be turned around, who will be saved, and how they will go on to do maybe greater works than you. Yeah. The minister, I don't even remember the name. I didn't even tell him I got saved that night, but I left there changed, you know. That is evident from your book uh, yeah. and from your life. The book is From a Convict to a Convert. You can get it on Amazon, and it is an honest story from a guy who walked every bit of that. And so you did a phenomenal job giving us a snapshot tonight, but go get the book off of Amazon and just read it, pass it to a friend or maybe a young person, drop them off to to a YMCA or Urban Young Life. If you have these places, these venues, like pass this stuff on and we'll keep sharing the story. You're not done, you're writing, you're writing music. Yes. And you, this idea of God going after the one, you always kind of identified with that one and right. you were the one out here and needing somebody to come after you. Right. And you wrote a new, you're doing an EP that comes out in July? Yes. Okay. Five song EP called I Was Always the One. And yeah. it talks about the story of when Christ uh, left the 99 sheep, go find that one that was lost. You know, And we're not talking about someone that was just uh, out there without Christ. We're talking about somebody that was in the fold and walked away. Yeah. And he had to come and gather and bring back and you know. You you want to do it live? Yeah. Would you do it? I would like to do we it. We don't have I offered to make a beat for him, but some reason he was like, No, I'm good. I'll just yeah. do it a cappella. So one last chance. I mean I'll that's fine. Okay. I'll do it. I'ma get I'm I'm gonna do it. I'ma have I'ma have some help with the hook. Yeah. You're gonna swap sub one? Uh, All right. So I'll let you do the introduction. Just on the hey, hook now part. it's happening, so you got to... Yeah, just uh, on the hook portion. Um, it's something called The One. And it's going to be like the single on the CD. And so I'm going to do it a cappella. But it's like... Um, I woke up this morning with you on my mind. Dropped to my knees and prayed. I know it's been a long time. I don't even know where to start. Father, I've been in the dark, but I can hide from you no longer. You are still my God. And regardless of how far I walk away, never give up on me, God. This is where I pray. Never leave me lonely, God. I want you to stay. Although lately I've been running from you, scared to show my face. Because I've been doing things I know you're not proud of. 
I have fallen, Lord. Please come pick your child up. Work in me both to will and to do of your good pleasure so I can please you. I was living in darkness. I was hiding from the sun. I knew I was beyond the place of no return. But God, you left the 99 to come find the one. God, you left the 99 to come find the one. I turned my back on you and from your presence I did run. Will I really be forgiven for everything that I've done? God, I left the 99 to come find the one. Amen. God, God you left, left the 99 to come find the one. Although I preach and I rap, I was always that sheep that would get off the path, and you would have to come find me and bring me back and restore me again, putting me back on track. I was doing what I wanted to do. I heard you calling me, but I continue running from you. But I can't no longer run. You, you are wherever I, I go. Am. You won't let me get away. I, I know. know. I've been doing things I know you're not proud of. I have fallen, Lord. Please, Please come, come pick, pick your child up. Leave the 99 and come get the one. You my father, I'm your son till I'm done. I was living in darkness. I, I was hiding from the sun. I knew I was beyond the, the place, place of no return. But God, you left the 99 to come find the one. God, you left the 99 to come find the one. I turned my back on you and, and from your presence I did run. Will I really be forgiven for, for everything, everything that I've done? God, you left the 99 to come find the one. God, you left the 99 to come find the one. I was always the one. That's it. Thank you.